gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Hey listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to the dispatch.com. Please sign up to become a member. Uh, you know, we uh we don't do ads, we don't do um clickbait, we don't do all of those things so that the user experience matches the actual quality of what we're doing. And and that means we need buy-in from uh wise and really attractive people like you. So please sign up if you can. So today is a very special episode um, in the annals. Uh, I mean, I, I think episode 100, we had Tom Soul on. Episode 200, I believe, was a half-baked ideas palooza with Congressman Mike Gallagher, fan favorite. And for episode 300, I've pulled every string I have. I've called in every favor I possibly could. And we have gotten, um, we've landed the big get. And that is none other than my uh, former MUNSIS and major domo and former producer of this podcast and sidekick for this podcast, Jack Butler, to return to the remnant for episode 300. Welcome back, Jack. Oh, man. Thank you for welcoming me back. Uh, Feels... Both strange and familiar to return here, and I hope that listeners feel both of those emotions upon hearing my voice in their ears once again. Yeah, so I mean, and for listeners who don't, who who've only joined us fairly recently, um, you should know that Jack. First of all, he is the um, uh, originator of the tradition which we now pay homage to. Of ending yes, every I'm podcast. aware of this. I've noticed. Saying, I, I, uh, I also noticed that I podcast. haven't been getting royalties from this, but I'll let that I'll let that pass by. And um, um, and I should say that it's, I'm very disappointed because we had a great remnant yesterday with uh, my AI colleague Leon Aaron, who's a Russia scholar, and the audio may or may not be lost. We are still trying to recover it. We've sent all sorts of goon squads and recovery teams to the four corners of the earth to try and get it. But we don't know. And I got him to say, no, you won't. This is a podcast in Russian, which was a nice touch, I thought. So, wow. Um, How many languages has it been set in? Is, is it just two? No, I think it's, that would make, with, with Leon, that would make it three. Because we had, um, oh gosh, what was the guy from Oklahoma? Um, I, I really apologize for not remembering, but it'll come to me. He did it in Latin, and then oh. John McWhorter did it in some strange, like Indonesian tribal dialect, which nice. was really pretty cool. Um, of course, it was it was mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo podcast because you know <laughs> there are not a lot of languages that have podcasts. But uh, so hey, maybe you, you could try Latin at the end of this if you want. No, no, my my Latin has atrophied, just like my social skills. Uh, which, unlike social skills, I actually did know Latin at one point pretty well. Um, but no, I'm aware that my that word comes to me that that my specter has lingered over this podcast through that that uh, homage that is now invoked at the end of every episode. Um, occasionally, I get mentioned just casually for other reasons, and I have to say, most infuriatingly, 
that episode you did with the conspiracy theory expert yeah, was that in yeah. may was his name yeah. douglas urbanski is that right yeah 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 yeah. i i was just listening to that and i was just, and as you predicted accurately i was just tearing my hair out like ah <laughs> oh, yeah, no so asking this know that jack dabbles in conspiracy theories and uh, when he was very new on the job and I told him that I had been to Bohemian Grove, his eyes lit up like I had been to Alderaan or something like that before um, the genocide. Um, but uh, are you are you still, I mean, you never tried to peddle forcefully real conspiracy theories on me. You're more of a dabbler, right? You, 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 you're interested in them, but like, so what's the craziest conspiracy theory that you actually kind of sort of believe in? Well, okay, basically, so if I should also before we before we get going, I now my my current position, I, I work for National Review, just so if I, there may be people who don't know that Associate or National Review is my title. Okay, now that that's out of the way. So crazy conspiracy theories, basically anything positing the uh, malevolence, any any conspiracy theory, depending on the malevolence of the Soviet Union, I'm open to so that 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 would include uh, direct Soviet interference in the assassination of JFK or the attempted assassination of John Paul II. Um, I think the craziest theory of this genre that I would, would pretty much believe is the lost cosmonauts. The idea that there were, um, people who participated in the Russian space program, whose deaths were just completely covered up, who were, for all we know, just floating out somewhere in the in the solar system, uh, completely forgotten about because the Soviets didn't want to admit that they had done that they had messed something up. Could be could be animals for all we know. I don't I don't <laughs> because they that's something the Soviets also did with send animals into space. So they could the last cosmonauts could be animals. But yeah, basically, those are the kind of that's the kind of conspiracy theory I would go f- further than merely dabbling in. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm told it's funny you mentioned that. Well, first of all, on the sending animals into space, I am still horrified that the Soviets tried to turn Laika, that was her name, right? The dog? Yeah. Arcade Fire Into song. a, like, kid's cartoon pet toy fluff an- stuffed animal type thing when they sent up this poor dog into space and then let it die slowly of starvation, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like the most gruesome... Yeah, it's got to be like a cosmonaut dog, you know, it's got to be probably the worst thing the Soviet Union ever did. It's up there. It's up there. Um, uh, But no, it's funny you mentioned this because I was in in this this now legendary, perhaps permanently missing podcast with Leon Aaron. One of the points I made was that. One of the worst legacies of the Cold War was all of the conspiracy theories that Russia injected into particularly developing countries about the cia creating aids right um you know they they uh and in countries that didn't have fully formed journalistic institutions and didn't have really vibrant democracies this stuff spread like wildfire and is still doing lasting damage to america's image although worse things have been done recently to america's image (laughs) um so um we should also say, I should also tell you, I don't know if you know this, but um, talking about lost episodes, um, I felt like I had... To, who's the guy who directed Grizzly Man? Was it Hart- uh, The director of Grizzly Man was Werner Herzog. Yeah, so 
I had to, Timothy you know Treadwell how, was the the quote unquote star. Unless you think the bear was the star. No, 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 no. I and mean, I, I remember the the Jack Butler figure that the thing was centering on. I remember him well. But Werner Herzog, there's a scene at the end where uh, Herzog, to his credit, refuses to play the audio uh, that was running of the bear attack that killed the guy. Spoiler alert, people. Um, and so instead you watch him listening to it and you just see his face morph into a, like a slight rictus of horror as he's listening to this horrible uh, you know, killing of two people. And I just, I have to let you know, I let, it took a long time to retrieve it, but I, I let uh, Nick, uh, your replacement, listen to episode 11. Oh, oh no. And it was, it was hard. I mean, it, like he was deeply scarred by it and we almost just had to have him um, institutionalized as a result. So yeah, you I, got, I thought you should know. Yeah, your, your, your mind's got to be in a, in, a, in a pretty solid place to survive listening to that with your sanity intact it's the as audio you know, gum jabbar right as you know <laughs> though my sanity was never intact so i was i was able to listen to it without any problems um so that's all that's all that's all fine one one thing i want to while we're still talking about conspiracy theories so first off i just want to mention how on brand it is that we're now talking about how dangerous bears are it's just yes class it's that's like right. we just picked up right where we left off uh, but speaking of large animals you find in the woods, uh, let's do another on-brand thing. I have, in my travels, in my exile over this past year, about which perhaps we will have more to say in a bit, I have, uh, I've collected many things, and among the things I've collected is some Bigfoot erotica. Have you really? Yes. Uh, one of the other podcasts I listened to happened to, uh, happened to reference some. I'm not going to read it directly but i just want to describe the scenario to you and uh just turn off all so i'll simultaneously turn off all of your new listeners who have no idea what this is about and entice all of the old listeners who know exactly what this is so the summary i will give to this is it's like from from bigfoot to eternity basically the the beach scene from from here to eternity there's this this human woman who's wandering around um, a wooded area that's near a beach. She wanders out of the woods, goes onto the beach, and is sort of hiding in this rock outcropping. Uh, or she's in this rock outcropping. At first, she doesn't realize she's hiding. But then she looks onto the beach, sees some humanoid figures, uh, doesn't, doesn't really think much of it, and then looks more closely and finds that they're, they're clearly not human. They're Bigfoot. Big, big feet. feet. Big feet. Bigfoots, whatever the correct plural is, they are, and there are several females. I don't know how she was able to distinguish. Uh, for what it's worth, we think that the Patterson Gemlin Bigfoot was female, so maybe it is possible to find this out. Uh, but so there are several females on the beach, and one male, and the male is sort of, they're like dancing around and prancing about, and the male is sort of is flinging seaweed onto the females as part of some bizarre game. And the, uh, the human woman who's watching all this is about to take a picture of it because she can't, she can't believe it's happening. And so she, she gets her camera, which she happens to have with her, but then hits it on a rock. And instantly all of the big feet or the big feet look at her. And the male, who is uh, in a state of excitement, shall we say, mm-hmm. 
indicated mm-hmm. by a certain part of his body, mm-hmm. starts running at her, uh, furious, and she sees this and is terrified. Then she gets, she passes out, and when she wakes up, all the all the all the big feet are gone. That's all. So it's kind of a tease, actually. It's it's right on the edge uh-huh. of Bigfoot erotica, but there is something there is something erotic about it, right? I think I think it qualifies. Sure. I was I was I was I was wondering where the payoff in this uh this tale would uh show up. Um, I still have on my Kindle from our Bigfoot erotica phase of the Remnant um four or five. $1.99 titles from Amazon that <laughs> every now and then I'm like, what the hell? But, uh, you know, we, we don't need to dwell on Bigfoot erotica too much. Although Denver Riggleman, who briefly, the congressman who lost um, recently in Virginia. Oh, he lost? Um, he lost, which is a tragedy because he actually turns out to be a really good dude and the Bigfoot erotica thing was kind of unfair to him. Um, but, uh, uh, he's agreed to come on the podcast at some point. I just haven't circled back with him. And, you know, I, I feel like that will be the denouement of of Bigfoot erotica conversations on this podcast because um, it's not like we're going to have authors of, well, I guess he is an author of Bigfoot erotica, but like one goes a long way, I think. Um, yeah. Th- but is that a quote from some Bigfoot erotica as well that you just it said? It probably is. Um, <laughs> so, um, but speaking of, you know, Bigfoot erotica. Um, how's it going at National Review? <laughs> I am trying to make sense of that segue, and I I, I really can't. Um, so I'm just going to answer the second qu- the, the second part of that sentence. It's going quite well. Uh, I really like it there. Um, well, I should put when's there, the last time you're actually in the office. Yeah, I was going to say. So I should. Th- my answer to this question will serve as a kind of partial account for listeners of what I've been up to over the past year. So basically I moved, I, I picked up my life and moved from DC to New York. Uh, around this time last year is when I was in the process of actually doing it. I ended up moving there February, February 2nd, 2020 Super Bowl Sunday. And yeah, I got to see national reviews office. See, uh, I don't, I don't think Wilmore Kendall's couch is there. Uh, but there yeah, are some fine. other, there are some other artifacts. Uh, there are some people, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't really know that I got to meet. Um, it was all well and good. I was, I was, I was sort of overwhelmed by New York City, but I mean, what do you expect uh, from someone who has really never been there? But I was starting to figure things out. I was starting to like life there. Then there was this little thing called coronavirus. Uh, listeners may have heard of it, <laughs> and there were a couple of. Uh, coronavirus hawks in the NR office. Mm-hmm. And I, I at this time, I wasn't really paying that close attention to it because I was in the middle of completely uprooting my personal life. So I was like, yeah, there's, there's another sort of SARS thing out there. Whatever. I mean, we've, those have happened before. There'll be like five cases in America. This is my thought in, in January, like January, my, my reason for not really paying attention to it. But the coronavirus hawks and then me observing the international happenings as February comes along, I'm starting to think, hmm, maybe maybe New York City is not the best place to be right now. And so early March, I flee. And so basically that's the... So I fled and then... Yeah, so you're I, back I, in I Ohio? Hold, no, I, I was in Ohio for four months of 2020. Uh, but... Eventually, I got got 
I worked it out such that I could work remotely permanently. And it just so happened that the apartment that I vacated uh, last year. Yeah, last year. I'm, I'm so, yeah, time, time, what does time mean anymore? It was last year. It opened up again right when my New York lease ex- expired. So I just moved back <laughs> to D.C. in the same room that I had before. So, I, I, so you're I have, in D.C. now. I am here. I did not know that. Did you not notice that I've been rearranging your furniture in your house? <laughs> I, I knew someone was. I just didn't think it was you. I was like, I could have been oh, Jack, well. you know? Yeah. Um, uh, no, I haven't actually been doing that. Just, just so it, that people it, know. It explains yeah, the strange I, disturbance. Um, right. So, yep. I've been back here since August. No, July. Late July. And, and you think you're going to stay here? That's the plan. Wow. Um, so you didn't. So, yeah, like, so but, what? 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 What didn't you like? I mean, other than the coronavirus part, which we have here in D.C. too. You know, it's that's a, true. It's true. It's a vibrant, full city. It has all the right diseases. Um, <laughs> what? Um, what didn't you like about New York that made you decide to want to go back to D.C.? Because you never uh, seem to really love D.C. Uh, well, I mean, I only so I wrote something for the the Washington Examiner just before I left about how I sort of, in an unlikely turn of events, ended up actually enjoying living in Washington, D.C., uh, mostly just because I, I, I carved out a nice niche for myself socially and kind of geographically. There's a, I've, I've more, pretty much always lived in Northeast, and it's an area I've grown fond of. Um, but what, what did I like not like about New York? It was huge. <laughs> there are a lot of people there. Uh, I, was all, I was just as I was leaving, was I only on, was I on the verge of actually figuring out how the subway work aside from just the commute that i needed to take from my apartment to the office and back um it was my my apartment was pretty small it was not like i i know people who have had worse new york apartments it was pretty it was it was fine i would have lived there probably if things hadn't changed but i just the the opportunity to return to a place that i was actually familiar with uh, that I was already sort of comfortable in, I just I just leapt at it, and so that's why I came back here. There are things about New York that I liked. Uh, I I am undefeated in races there. I only <laughs> I ran one race there in the time that I lived there. Um, and and you in came in sp- first. Yes. What was the race? For listeners who don't know, Jack is a big cross country runner and has done marathons and whatnot. It is called the Spring Fling 10K. It's not not a uh-huh. huge race, um, but it was it was nice to win. Uh, and indisputably, New York produces higher quality bagels than anywhere that I've encountered. And they do it like, unlike everything else in New York, the bagels aren't actually more expensive. They seem cheaper, if anything. Yeah. Because uh, they just, they know what they're doing. But no, I, my judgments of New York will be always just fatally flawed because I, I spent a total of six weeks living there. There's just there's no I, way I, I had can... no idea it was that short. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it was. It's it's really quite comical. I, I mean, I I just find I I just keep thinking back on it and and laughing at how how bizarre it all was. But I mean, we've all we all had bizarre things happen to us in 2020. In fact, yeah. I mean, go on. What well, one of the things I was uh, I I I made I wanted to make sure I brought up. There is an argument that. The the reason that the world descended into the chaos that it has inhabited over the past year, more or less, is it not possible that I am the cause? The fact that I left the remnant. It's possible. It's possible. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet heavily on it. Uh, you know, <laughs> John Podoritz has a theory that 
um i'm gonna butter butcher it but like um remember there was that mishap in the oscars where oh right it was. yeah Read it was the, the wrong the, winner the missing the, the 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 screwed up best picture right uh and his theory is that that cracked the universe and everything has been weird since then um and that, that timing kind of works out you wrote a g file i can't remember if it was contemporaneous to that or earlier where you you had this elaborate like fantasy novel image of of a like a a a room full of all of the rules that were contained in like little globes and you 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 envisioned somebody like recently having gone in there and just accidentally like tripped or something and then caused all of the rules to fall off their shelves and break open and little pixies i have no memory of this but it sounds like something i might have written it's not i mean maybe it was a sort of drug trip because it sounds it's it's so hallucinogenic that it's like almost it's almost difficult to imagine just a normal human coming up with this but i am not talking to a normal human i'm talking to jonah goldberg and jonah goldberg is not talking to a normal human either that's right i mean this is one of the things i think i told you but um you know now that now that you were a man of letters in your own right i can be a little rougher on you um (laughs) When you moved to NR, which I was very supportive of, and I'm glad, and from my, I have, I still have, I still have sources within the deep state at NR that I talk to quite regularly. So I get reports about you and I'm going to have to go visit some of them and say, what the hell you didn't tell me you moved back to Washington. But, (laughs) um, uh, when, when you moved to NR, I, I think I told this to, to, to Charlie Cook. Um, I was like, you know, by, normal parameters or even AEI parameters. Uh, Jack's kind of weird, but at NR, he'll fit right in the meaty part of the bell curve in terms of the distribution of weirdness because <laughs> the place has always attracted really very, very strange people. Um, I'm still bummed that, you know, because you, you saw the new offices, which are on 44th, I think, right? By the, uh, like the Yale Club or whatever. Not the Yale Club. The- yeah. Yeah, no, Harvard you're right. It's one of those clubs. Yeah, and they're nice offices. They're probably the nicest offices that NR has ever had. I joined NR a year or two after they sold the old townhouse, which is where all the real legendary stuff happened with the Wilmore Kendall couch. And, <laughs> and uh, my understanding is Rich has told the story about how Joe Sobrin, uh, before he, let's just be charitable, lost his way. Um <laughs> That is very charitable. Isn't it? Um, he used to smoke these awful slender cigar things in his office all day long. And when they had to like clean out the office, Rich discovered that those that it, they weren't like weird patterns in the wall, but they were actually window panes that had been so stained by his cigar smoke <laughs> that they had been oh, turned <laughs> completely black, you know, opaque. Um, wow. But uh, uh, yeah. Th- there's not anyway. quite that level of accreted history in the in the new NR office yet. I mean, there there's as I mentioned, there are archive archival material there, but uh, it's it's just too new to have the long tradition of existence necessary for such things yet. Um, yeah, but Jack Fowler is kind of walking accreted history in some ways. That's so true, that. and we mean that in the highest sense, in the oh, best. Of in, Love Jack. Um, but yeah, so the, to answer your question that you actually asked, the. Um, the last time I was in those offices was in July of last year when I wow. returned briefly to just move all, all of my stuff out. And I was in there alone until uh, Jay Nordlinger showed up and it was like shocking to see another 
to see one of my colleagues, which I hadn't done at that point since March and haven't since. <laughs> so it's been, I mean, this is something the whole world has had to figure out, at least in the whole of our world, how to do these things remotely. But it's just been funny to 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 like have people to work with people whom I have never met in person, but have seen in settings such as this that we're currently in. Um, we have someone on, on staff who has spent, he's a Buckley fellow who spent his entire fellowship so far in Belfast, Northern Ireland. (laughs) Um, so it's just, it's just, I mean, I, obviously I, I get why, but it's just, it's just a strange circumstance that these things occur. Yeah, my current intern is in London, which is weird. Um, but these are the times we live in. I mean, we, when we launched the Dispatch, we did not anticipate it being an entirely virtual business for over a year, but that's where we are. Um, all right, so I should also tell listeners, you are the host of your own podcast, The Young Americans. Yep. Um, and um, and the the conceit of it is that you have young Americans on it. Yes, I know that it may be difficult for people to get there to wrap their heads around, but yeah, that's the basic idea. Although I violated that rule on several occasions. Uh, <laughs> multiple but so, did occasions. the people who weren't young Americans come on? Do you have them talk about young American things? I sort of sh- I try to shoehorn it that way. Um, like when I had the definitely not young American Steve Hayward on, no offense mm-hmm. to him, <laughs> I, I tried to. We talked about Reagan, but I, I I tried to make the the conversation about like why should why should people today people who are like my age or even younger care about the Reagan as more than just a historical figure like is his legacy enduring et cetera so that's what this sort of shoehorning I try to do when I get truly non young Americans on in fact I'm my, I myself am inching ever closer to that category I've only got uh, a little more than two years before the threshold I've established for my own podcast becomes something that I myself can no longer, no longer applies to me. Because you're going to turn 30. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sucks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, there's no getting around it. Turning 30 was, was not great. Um, I actually wrote a, I wrote a G file about turning 30 22 or 21 years ago. <laughs> Just to give you a sense of how long. I, I was told there would be no math here. So, um, but uh, no, but I don't need to, need to worry about it that much. I remember, do you know who Frank Farenkoff was or is? I think he's still alive. Um, I don't. He was, an, he was, for a long time, he was the head of the RNC, sort of a bushy guy. And I remember him talking about how the young Republicans um, kind of lost their relevance because, is it young Republicans? I mean, it's, it's, is that what they call them? Young Republicans? Are you thinking of the, the young guns? No, that it's like the youth, the college, college Republicans. Oh, college, yeah, college um, Republicans. Yeah, college Republicans. It's it's like young Democrats and college Republicans. Those are the two like party arms on campus, or at least historically. And um, I'm sure I'm butchering some of the facts, but the gist of it was was that uh, the leadership got so comfortable that they stayed in there into like their 40s, <laughs> <laughs> college Republicans, um, and. Uh, I would say that on much of the right, comfortable sinecures um, are still a problem in in all sorts of ways. All right, so let me ask you. Like, let's do a little substance here. Um, 
Wow, so something new. Um, I am not a fan of Charlie Kirk. I am not a fan of uh, much of what passes for um, sort of youth conservatism stuff. I've I've worked with Yaf off and on for twenty years, done maybe a hundred speeches for them. Um, not a huge fan of the turn that they've taken. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't want to like just set fire to a relationship here, but um, I'm generally dismayed at the own the libs culture of college Republicans. You know, I've been giving speeches to college campuses for 20 years where I tell these kids, you know, look, it's fine to argue with political correctness, but just because being a jackass is politically incorrect is not an excuse to be a jackass. And clearly no one listened to me because jackassery seems to be very popular among a lot of young conservatives these days. Um, um, so, you know, what do you think about the degree to which college conservatives, campus conservatives, young, you know, 20 somethings, um, are they, do you think that they are spiraling away from the old fusionist models or national review conservatism or fusionism, um, Reaganism, whatever you want to label it, um, to be part of this MAGA head stuff? Or do you think there's still, there's still enough of, of them that we don't have to talk about them as if they're just a remnant? Hmm. Well, I, I think it's, it's, um, from my experience of talking to people who are still in in college uh, Republican settings or recently removed from them, I think a lot of in most places they're pretty divided uh, between these two strains. Uh, I, I can't I can't say for sure which one is winning. The the one that's probably definitely getting more publicity nowadays is the is the one that that is more worrisome. The one that you described as having these. Uh, these sort of unhelpful behaviors. Uh, I, I don't know how that sort of was going to play out, frankly, but I think, I think it's kind of a mirror toward a, a mirror or a microcosm of a lot of sh- the struggles that, that the right is going to face over the next couple of years in, in that the solution is to kind of get these, get these people to stop fighting with each other to the extent possible. But also I think that it's, it's just indisputable that they're, there are certain like aspects of the TPUSA model that like, look, there's always, there's always going to be a degree of assertiveness, a, a degree of even like self victimization when you're a conservative on a college campus. Like that's just inevitable. That's what academia is now. And you're always get you're always going to sort of have to be realizing that you're in, in the rebellious mode and that's fine. Uh, but I got no problem with that. Yeah. If you're doing it, if you're doing it in a way that, that just leans completely into the fact that, uh, or it leans completely into this aspect and you're, you're not actually trying to persuade anybody if you're not, um, if you're just doing things for show, uh, if it's all just theatrical, then I just kind of wonder like, what's, what's the point? Are you just trying to make yourself feel better? Uh, are you learning anything useful in the political arena or are you just learning how to, uh, become a well-paid cable news commentator someday? Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think that there's, there, there's a lot going on there and I, th- I think there are, there are respectable people still in these organizations still, and also people whose instincts are more misguided and who are falling under sway of more unhelpful tendencies. And 
I think there's still these groups are still in tension with each other uh, in almost every campus organization of the kind that you describe. And it's going to be possibly ugly to see which one ends up on top. Um, a lot of ugliness nowadays. Yeah, I mean, to, to use a Soviet era example, I mean, my view is that basically CPAC has become the common turn of conservative <laughs> asininity. And that doesn't mean that everybody goes to CPAC. I mean, CPAC has always been a weird sort of Star Wars cantina thing, but um, I've been to many CPACs and I was the CPAC journalist of the year in like 2011 or something. But the, um, but it has been so Trumpified, you know, under the leadership of Matt Schlapp. Um, and I use leadership in the technical sense um, that, the organizations that um, take their cues from CPAC uh, get a bad message. And so the, here's the example, just to illustrate it. I think I've probably told you this before. Um, you know, I used to, I mean, I'm still friends with him, much to the chagrin of John Podoritz and other friends of Israel uh, with Peter Beinart. And uh, I used, I probably debated Peter sort of left, right kind of thing. Um, on 25 college campuses, something like that. And we also used to do debates in, 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 in DC. And, um, at one time he debated Ann Coulter instead of me mm -hmm. on some campus. And again, this is a long time ago and they were having like an actual debate and this is Peter's telling. So maybe it's unfair, but I find it entirely plausible in, in fact, entirely believable. Um, uh, cause he was just so aghast by the whole thing. Um, he's debating Anne and, um, and he scores a legitimate point about something or other. And her response is something along the lines of, why do I have to listen to you? You're in favor of sticking forks in fetuses and killing them. And look, I'm opposed to partial birth abortion. I'm, 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 I'm essentially pro-life. Uh, but. My, the only reason I bring it up is that if you were a relatively moderate or conservative curious college kid and you went to go hear that debate, um, Anne would push you away. You know, if you're on the fence about conservatism, she'd push you over the side towards liberalism rather than attract you towards conservatism. And the point of all of these organizations is supposed to be not, I mean, it's fine. You know, I've spoken to a bunch of gaff conventions and when it's all conservative kids in the room, I let the red meat fly like it's an abattoir because why not? It's just a bunch of conservatives in the room and you can have fun with it and you can tell jokes and all that kind of stuff. But if you're talking to an audience that is a diverse, ideologically diverse audience and you're trying to um, persuade people that your side is right, um, you should take care not to do that kind of thing. And it seems to me that big chunks of at least what what percolates up to me um viewing from afar at this point is a lot of what gets the coverage as you suggest what dominates on these kinds of campuses you know is the uh oh liberal tears are delicious uh kind of argumentation which um has its place again in with friendly audiences you can do some of that but uh if the goal is to actually convert people to your cause, that's exactly the wrong approach. And it seems to me that that's what gets rewarded today among young people. 
Yeah, well, yeah, and I, I don't, I try to The avoid... Young Americans podcast notwithstanding. <laughs> exactly, thank you. Thank you for, of course not. Um, so I, I try to avoid whataboutism, and I don't, think, I don't think what I'm about to say is whataboutism, but if, if it is, then what about what you're saying? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, but no, I, I think that the, unfortunately, the, this tendency has arisen on, on, on campuses among conservatives at least partially in response to a perception which often uh, is is reality that the the left leaning elements uh, of young people on campuses have become sort of impenetrable as well, or have become more extreme, or have resorted to more uh, tactics to uh, isolate them or silence them, and th- those are those are real complaints. Uh, sure, but the the, the I, I I I find grievance politics just kind of boring ultimately and if, if that's all if that's all that is being offered in, in these places then uh well i'm not in college anymore so, so it doesn't matter and and besides the place where i went to college is kind of a unique place in this regard so this is why this is why i'm trying to speak from the experiences of other people and not from my own experience because uh, my my alma mater has uh, has has a different, a slightly different environment uh, from all of this. So, but yeah, this is this is my sense of things, um, and we shall see how it unfolds. Um, yeah, I did a. I don't think you were working. I think this is before you were working for me. But I did a speech at Williams, and the sponsoring organization was something I'd never heard of before. It was something along the lines of the Center for Uncomfortable Learning. And no, I think this was while I was working for you. Was I remember it, yeah. this. So it, it was amazing because like the, you know, the way that leftism gets sold on college campuses is they tell them that they're being rebellious and transgressive by agreeing entirely with the faculty and the administration and the mainstream media. And, you know, it's my whole shtick about how liberalism has convinced people that it's rebellious when it's like the highest form of conformity. And, um, and so it's funny, they call themselves the Center for uh, Uncomfortable Learning precisely to exploit that. And because if they called it like Young Americans for Liberty or something like that, then only people who already agreed with me would show up. But instead, these kids thought that they were going to get, you know, really bold, you know, uh, critical race theory, transgressive stuff that they agreed with. And then I start doing my spiel about free markets and free society and Friedrich Hayek. And it was like watching, it's like when you have your dog in the car and you're, and they realize that you're not going to the park and you're going to the vet. Um, they're like, wait a second, this isn't the way to the park, you know? And then all of a sudden they were just really annoyed that they were actually getting uncomfortable learning <laughs> about something. Um, so I'm, I'm fine with exploiting that kind of thing. And again, I'm fine with, with, with stunts and all that kind of stuff, but there has to be some pedagogic, intent behind it there's got to be some effort to actually win hearts and minds otherwise it's just performative jackassery for its own sake and that that keeps conservatives from winning arguments rather than you know advances the ball yeah it's best to keep that kind of thing on podcasts i think i probably (laughs) um so um where else shall we go with this okay so since we're on young people uh you recently wrote about the um the youngest is he? I don't know if he's the youngest congressman ever, but he's definitely the youngest congressman he now. He's not the Popper. youngest ever. 
Yeah, he's not the youngest ever, but he's the youngest current one. Yeah. And uh you're you're not a fan. What what what's your problem with Madison Cawthorn? Well, so I, I was so there's a there's a kind of story that goes into this because over the summer he was being attacked or over the last summer he was being attacked, I, I thought kind of speciously, um for for Instagram posts that he had made that supposedly indicated Instagram posts and other things like owning a Betsy Ross flag that supposedly indicated that he was a racist ipso facto. And I thought that was pretty silly. Uh, maybe I would use other words than silly. So I, I sort of wrote in defense of him, but he, he is not since then. And especially since he's uh, assumed uh, his office in, in Congress, he has not exactly covered himself in glory. Uh, he, he went along with, uh, I, he, I would say he did more than simply go along with his caucus, which is something that he didn't have to do. There were people who didn't do it. Our friend Mike Gallagher in uh, objecting to the electoral college certification. Uh, but he also spoke at that rally, at the, at the rally at the ellipse that, um, that your reporters Andrew Egger and Audrey Falberg covered so well. He mm-hmm. spoke about it, and he spoke there in kind of questionable language. Uh, he called for people to lightly threaten <laughs> the member of Congress, which I didn't even know about <laughs> when I when I wrote this article. And in this in this um, this article, or not article, yeah, well, in this art, this profile of him, uh, written by someone at a New York magazine, so obviously a ho- pretty hostile audience. Probably a best better idea for him just not to have done the interview in the first place. But he, I, I think, he, for, I learned from the interview that he has this this kind of inflated sense of himself and his role. I think he's pretty consciously seeking the AOC model, mm-hmm. it, and for for governance and in which, or the Matt Gates model, which although both Gates and Cawthorn both sort of admit they they have this grudging admiration for AOC and thinking that she's the, the quote-unquote best at the performative governance, as you've all of in my, my term it. And yeah, I've, I just, I, I'm just not impressed by what I've seen so far, and I, I, felt, I feel kind of silly for having defended him because I just, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing in him like a, a sort of young Mike Gallagher. I'm seeing in him someone who, at least as of right now, embodies a lot of the worst instincts of uh of what it means to be not just a conservative but but a, a politician period and i I'll, I'll grant that he's young he's younger than i am which makes him really young he could change i don't know maybe um and there's a lot of time left there, there he has he has he's in his first term plenty of time to make mistakes uh but i i think i'm thinking about this if if i were if I were in his position, I just there are so many things that he's done that I, I wouldn't that I wouldn't do. Um, just because I'm partly because I'm just not the kind of person who runs for Congress these days, frankly. Uh, but also just I I think my attitude, and this has been kind of my attitude to since starting at National Review. I I consider National Review to be an institution that's much more important than I am. One that I'm serving one that I'm trying my best not to embarrass. And I, I've just, to the extent that I can, I've just tried to, to uh, take my cues from, from the people who are around me and above me 
to learn what I can from being in their presence and to become sort of the best institutional actor that I can possibly be. And I, I don't see that as of right now in, in what Cawthorn is doing. Maybe he could change. I don't know. But maybe I'm being too harsh. But I, I mean, I, I guess it's just some, seeing someone pretty much my age making these mistakes or what I, what, at least what I deem mistakes, I'm, I'm not encouraged by them. So we'll see. Maybe. Yeah, look, I'm not, I'll, I'll, I'll say I was heartened that he offered a kind of apology for um, backing this effort to steal the election. Yes, that's um, worth acknowledging. And, that, and, and good for him. At the same time, and you've heard me rant about this a million times, probably even on this podcast. Um, the hardest thing in politics to have is that organic connection with an audience, right? It's, it's, and I've been saying this since Donald Trump, long before Donald Trump ran for office, is like to have that sort of charismatic, people want to follow you, people want to hear from you, they want to take cues from you, they'll, they want to march through the gates of hell for you and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, you know, and as I used to say in 2012, if Mitt Romney could, if you could buy it, Mitt Romney would have bought it. Right. But you can't buy it. It's this natural, um, political skill that some people have and some people don't, and you can get better at it, but you can't have what Sarah Palin instantly had. You can't have what, um, Rick, what's his name? The former governor of, of Texas had or what Perry. Fred Thompson had, right? It's funny yeah, that you these, forgot these, Rick Perry's last name. Yeah, but uh, I, I didn't say there if, are, Rick Perry has three names and the third one is oops. Um, yeah. But, uh, and my problem with people like Cawthorn in particular is, um, and let me say, I, I despise Matt Gates far more. I don't despise Cawthorn. I just think he's, as you right. put it, a, disappoint, a disappointment is that the easiest thing to do is your freaking homework is just do your homework, you know, like read some books. Uh, Mike Gallagher is a serious guy who does his homework and, you know, he went to grad school. He, he, you know, he, he, he knows what he is talking about and can get really deep in the weeds really quickly on granular areas of policy and constitutional principle. Ben Sass has done his homework. Cawthorn, you know, doesn't know what he is talking about a lot of the time. You know, you know, when he says, oh, it's great to be here in Congress because this is where they passed the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, he should know, you know, as a high school graduate that Congress didn't pass the Emancipation Proclamation. He, do, he says, you know, I'll give him a pass for saying that James Madison signed the Declaration of Independence because I think a lot of people reasonably don't necessarily know that, know that he didn't. But he makes these kinds of mistakes regularly. And it's a sign that he doesn't have the minimal patriotic sense of minimal patriotic obligation to do his due diligence and just know what he's talking about. And I have a similar critique of AOC. I certainly have that critique of Donald Trump, who's never interested in doing his homework, never even reading daily briefs from intelligence people. But, you know, conservatism, real conservatives have an extra obligation in my book to do their homework for the precise reason that it's going to be very difficult to persuade people to, because conservatism by itself is kind of unpopular. You need to persuade people to it and you need to make arguments. And that means you need to be informed. And Cawthorn is another one of, it strikes me as another one of these guys who's just a celebrity congressman who can talk a big game in terms of bumper stickers about patriotism and rah, 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 you know, nationalism BS, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an airhead. And maybe he's, 
maybe he's not an airhead in the sense that he has raw intellectual cognitive abilities, but he's not filling that up with like these things called facts or information. And right. so it's, it's, I, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way slightly endearing <laughs> that some of his historical errors have been like, it's like someone who was sort of half asleep in history class. So he's yeah. like knows who James Madison is, which is a plus. I mean, good for him. There's a lot of people who don't. Um, then he's like signed. <laughs> then he's like signed the Declaration. Oh, or like Congress passed the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, no, but at least you know what the Emancipation Proclamation was, sort of. So it's, it's, and that it's it was just, good, right? I mean, that's yeah, it's like a good thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. so th- there's like there's there's a sense of, there's a, this is the, this is why I put it that way. It's like someone who is half paying attention uh, to what to what is important could go the rest of the way, but just, as of as of now, it just clearly hasn't. So we'll see. I mean, I'm I'm probably going to be stuck with him for uh, most of my life. Maybe he'll be a different person by by the time we're both real adults as opposed to the fake adults we are now. We shall see. Um, yeah. One thing I will say is that you should just get used to politicians being younger than you because the yeah, tendency will only I've, increase over time. I've already gotten used to this with with uh, athletes um, who are, yeah, like it's it's already it's already happening. Um, so yeah, I'll get used to it. I'll get used to it. But I mean, you're still you should you should take solace in the fact that uh, your age is still young for a politician. That's true. Um, uh, my biological age, the age of my soul is very old for a politician. That's um, true. So uh, I will get, I probably should have asked, as, as Nick Pompella calls it, the demos for questions they wanted for Jack Butler, but I did not do that. But I, I can anticipate some of them. You've already touched on the running thing. Um, before, actually, before we get to other questions that people are going to want answers from you about, um, um, given your age, at what point statistically should you expect to be getting worse at cross-country running? Are you there yet? I know you don't oh. like this question, but... Yeah, deeply uncomfortable with this question. I, I think I've got uh, at least five to eight more years. Since, since I'm not a sprinter, I think I, I I can I can sort of ride this out. I, I don't think I'm at that point yet. Uh, for obvious reasons, I have not really done a r- serious race in a while. There are no serious races to be done. <laughs> uh, but I, I can I, I can tell I'm pretty much in the same shape I've been for the past couple of years at this moment, but without any sort of specific training. But no, I think I would say the like the decline in fitness will start. For long distance running in my mid thirties, I think is what is when it will happen. Assuming that I don't uh, that that other things don't waylay me. But you think which you I should still assume. get better? Huh? You think you can still get better, or are you just at your performance I, maintain I, your performance level now? I think that yeah, I think that I can. I think I'm still at a point for at least the next five years where I can outdo my best times if I if I have the opportunity to and train seriously to do that. Um, um, okay. So, uh, other things, which I have to admit, I have not stayed abreast of. So this is partly just an informational question. Yes. Um, what is going on with the Dune movie? 
is it oh, coming out? When is it coming out? What is the controversy? Next October. It was supposed to come out sooner, right? Supposed to come out in December of last year. Yeah. You should have seen me when this news came out. I was I was I was furious. It was and like you're, someone you're had, still optimistic that it's gonna be good. Cautiously. I having actually I, I saw a movie with uh Timothée Chalamet in it for the first time at some point last year, and he's kind of a I don't know. And I he mean, is I, for listeners who have no idea what we're talking about. He is the he's going to star as the the main yeah, the main character of Dune, Paul Trades. And um I don't know, he's kind of a he's a real good at he's real good at moping and being kind of like a mopey guy in movies, but that's not that's not quite all that Paul is in in Dune. Uh so I don't know, we'll see what we'll see what he does with the role. But the, the people the people the reason I'm optimistic is that the people around the cast around him is just like almost parodically exceptional. It's just a ridiculously stacked cast. Uh, both in front of and behind the camera. Hans Zimmer turned down scoring Tenet to score Dune instead, which is a good choice <laughs> for other reasons, I think, um, to avoid being associated with that movie. But yeah, I'm still optimistic. Uh, I'll definitely see it in, in a theater, assuming theaters still exist when it comes out, which I think they, they will. will It'll be more capacity. expensive and fewer of them, but they will, I think. John, but you, we should we should spend uh, fifteen to twenty minutes talking about this. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know, I know. You've taught you've spent like you've done like four or five glops on this topic. I won't. No, I know, and I, I kind of lost my temper on a recent one because it's just like we c- keep talking about this as if there's new information for pure speculation about what's going to happen, and it's like there isn't. We'll we'll wait and see. And but Pod really likes to talk about it, and um, you know, you could have ended anyway. that sense a little earlier, couldn't you? Yes, Pod likes to talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, and I saw somewhere, I guess Mark Wright said something about this, that, that you are optimistic about the Amazon Lord of the Rings TV series. Again, cautiously optimistic, uh, cause there's so much money being poured into it. Uh, but also the people who are involved may not understand what they're doing and may try to game of thronesify it, which I think would be a mistake. So yeah, I, I mean, I just I, I like to be I, I want to look forward to these things. I don't I don't want to dread that they're coming out because uh, I want them to be entertaining. But yeah, but if you keep your if you if you if you expect to be disappointed, then you're much more likely to be pleasantly surprised than if you get your hopes up. Oh, what's the what's the song that the commentary podcast does? The hope for the best, uh, expect, expect the, worst. the worst. Yeah, um, which is sort of that... which which should be your approach in situations where uh erotic behavior with big feet is is in the offing right is be prepared yeah. for the worst i i mean i, I fr- frankly having not been in many of the situations I, I i still haven't figured out quite the best way to to approach them uh, but i but still an open question in my in my view um the so so i, I, I no i've got a well, question for you uh-huh. uh your hair listeners yeah. can't see this has it been cut at any point recently it has not been cut since the first diagnosis of uh covid in the united states of america my beard has because my beard was okay. just getting cr- crazy crazy weird and there is something i think i've said this before but like it's something really psychologically disorienting to wake up in the morning and not figuratively but literally not recognize the person in the mirror 
<laughs> well, that's that could be a Twin Peaks kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean it was. I mean it's it's. It, I was going full Ted Kaczynski, and it was really kind of bad. But yeah, you can't see it, and I cannot risk an image ever being out there in the public. But I actually have my hair in a man bun right now. Wow. See, I had the, <laughs> so this is something until recently that we had in common. I I did not get a haircut f- for an entire year from December. 3rd, 2019 to December like 10th, 2020. My hair was quite long. I, I had it. I saw, I it saw your snake well. Pliskin thing. It looked yeah. Good. Yeah. I was, uh, name's Pliskin. Yeah. That was, that, that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good look for me, especially with the eye patch, which I still have. Um, but I also, and I that's also, that's what you did for Halloween. Right. I, so first, for listeners who don't remember or don't know, one of your first Halloweens with me. Well, you, you used to have a tradition of going to the Georgetown Steps and reading The Exorcist. Well, I only did Georgetown that one Steps. year. Well, you only did it once? Oh, I thought yeah, you did wa- it every year. No, I watched The Exorcist in, on Halloween 2016, uh, despite a lifetime of fear of the movie without ever having seen a single scene of it. Then 2017, I finished the book on The Exorcist Steps, which are in Georgetown. Um saw a priest there told him to be careful as he went down the steps <laughs> which i thought good was, advice yeah yeah good advice um 2018 rosemary's baby watched rosemary's baby 2019 i can't remember what i did on 29 in 2019 but in 2020 yes it was i snake plissken i dressed up as snake plissken because i had the hair for it um but yeah and uh, i also during a period i did not shave for quite a long time and i too went full kaczynski um uh-huh. it, it started to become a bother food started getting in the way or like food would start getting yeah. into my mustache and other other parts of my face facial hair uh it was getting hot out this is in the summer i was like okay this is and I, as i i found it basically impossible to run with a full beard like that it is like wearing a sponge on my face um and also, my friends and family started to become frightened of me. That was yeah, that was that's big, part of my problem with the beard. Yeah, that was a big reason they 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 started looking at me and were were sort of vaguely unsettled to be in my presence. At least more more unsettled than usual. So I got rid of the beard as well. So now I just look like I always do, which podcast listeners can definitely see. Yes, for sure. I mean, this is this is the kind of gold that we wanted to really save your appearance for the three hundredth episode to really reward people. Yeah, talking um, about grooming. Random listeners are into good and grooming. Hard. Yeah, the other day, um, I complained to my wife about how I was starting to eat my hair, and she was like, "Jonah, that's what like anorexic teenage girls do." And you know, and I was like, Oof. "No, I, I'm not doing it for stress. It's like getting in my food." <laughs> um, if only you but, had a grooming-related sponsor for this episode, then you, the segue here would be so easy. I don't do segues anymore. It's heartbreaking. That's, what we all. We now have what they call mid-roll or something where they just put it in so that you can swap out. Because, you know, working at, a, unlike National Review or AEI, uh, working at a for-profit business, um, you have to do things like this. And it's, it's, it was a little heartbreaking. Though some listeners are glad for it because they got so whipsawed by some of my segues that they wouldn't listen to me because they were waiting for it to turn into something about the Kitty Poo Club, Club or something that... Um, it distracted them from what I was saying, but then other people really liked it. I kind of miss it. I kind of think it was fun, but progress. Well, you were getting, you were getting so good at it. Yeah. The paved paradise and put up a parking lot. It's that kind of thing. Um, do you have any embarrassing stories about your national review coworkers that you can share? Uh, no, 
Um, Given what I said about being an institutional actor, I, I feel like I know. dishing on my coworkers is a big no-no. Also, I haven't seen any of them in in six months. Yeah, there's that. I have a great picture of uh, Charlie Cook that I hold over him as blackmail. That I'm, I'm, I'm being serious about it. I showed it to him recently because um, he he asked me to FaceTime him, and I FaceTime him, and he had just put taken off some sort of headband thing for his crazy hippie hair, and he looked absolutely ludicrous and i immediately did a screen cap of it to save for later i also have one of michael strain where he looks like the slide who's the head of the economics department at ai for listeners i don't know um where he looks remember the slideshow in animal house and where bluto comes up and they all like throw things at the screen not bluto uh flounder flounder shows yeah. up and they all throw things at the screen he looks exactly like that on fox news and i saw him on fox news once and i immediately took a picture of it because you know you never know when this kind of stuff is going to come in handy um uh, compromat right um the term for it that's exactly right um you know and you know at, at some point i'm still waiting for my um um compromat for for ramesh but you know i know i do know things about ramesh that could be of use later in life if most of that material possible. is safely archived on the planet vulcan that's right um, um, or in the vault that where we keep episode 11. Um, so are you relieved that Donald Trump is gone? Ah, great. So I've been waiting for this. Uh, I'm going to give remnant listeners a little preview cause I, I'm planning to write something about this for national review. And in fact, the remnant listeners have already had a preview of this. I'm not, I can't remember the episode and I'm not, I, I feel like it'd be really cruel to make whoever's job this is go back and find where I said this. So I guess maybe you could have somebody do it if you really wanted. But I, I, I had this elaborate comparison of, of Donald Trump to uh, Leto, uh, Leto II Atreides, Leto Atreides II. I'm actually not sure how you would say that because the, the, the numeral is right in the middle of the name. Uh, but anyway, the God Emperor of Dune. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I made this comparison first years ago on an episode of this, this very podcast. And I think the events of, the events since then have both enhanced and weakened the analogy in different ways but well, i still why don't you think recap what the analogy is for, yeah, for so basically for people who have not read dune <laughs> well who what people like that would be listening <laughs> to this podcast so yeah so fast forward twelve thousand years into the future uh humanity is a space-faring race uh depends on this spice that allows people to see through the time uh atreides family becomes Paul Atreides, becomes the ruler of the known universe, fails to do what is necessary to uh, ensure the future survival of humanity, leaves it to his son, who eventually turns into a sandworm and also has the ability to see through time and access all of his ancestors' memories. He uses these powers to take over the known universe, become the central dominating figure in it, route all of civilization through his person, and suppress the development of any other institutions, uh, technologies, et cetera, so that he can use a period of 3,500 years that his sandworm uh, hybridization allows him to live for to direct the course of humanity to a point where it is, its survival is assured. So the point where the analogy is weakened is that I'm not, I, Donald Trump has not been trying to steer us along the golden path. 
as far as I know. That that would be a very a very uh, in, impressive use of what they have called 4D or 8D or however many D chess over the years. But it is indisputable that over the past five years, Trump has been the central figure in politics and that everything has sort of revolved around him. And that's just sort of his superpower. It always it has been for a long time. He's in, entering the political sphere enabled him to sort of supercharge it. Uh, but now that he is out of the White House, there's this sort of comparable experience to what happens in Dune because this civilization that has been revolving around the god, the figure of the god emperor for so long now has to figure out what to do ne- next. And it's actually in the later Dune novels, it's revealed that it's, this is way too complicated to explain even however, even with all this stuff. Right, we've explained. lost almost all our listeners already. Yeah, yeah, I know. So. But basically the god emperor's influence, even though he does die at the end of God Emperor of Dune, it lingers on in certain ways that later inhabitants of the Dune universe have to reckon with this continuing influence and whether to accept it or reject it. And so I think that's the point we now find ourselves in. Uh, the, the God Emperor is, is, is no more. Uh, there are certain ways in which he lives on, uh, but now people, and, and this is something that Dan McLaughlin actually wrote without even referencing Dune, which I find mind-boggling that he could do it. Uh, he wrote this take in National Review just a, a couple of hours b- before I, I say these words that this is now our politics is now going to have to figure out what what is next. We haven't we don't we don't know what that's been like for five years. Yeah. Uh, there's there, there's a um, an article in the Washington Post early. Uh, I think this was before even the the Republican primary in 2016 started, uh, analyzing like the extent to which. A tr- Trump or a Trump-related story was the main thing in the news on each day since Trump's campaign began. And it found that that was true of almost every day uh, up to this point, with the exception of when the Pope came to, to Washington, D.C. That managed to dislodge Trump from the top of the news cycle, but only for a day. And now now it's now we're we're in the scattering to put it in dune terms well what mm-hmm. what comes next we're, we're we're the heretics of dune uh so who knows what's gonna happen um i have some guesses but i i really we're 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 back to a politics that is not being constantly routed through the person of donald trump so we'll see what comes of it but that was a long way of not answering my question are you relieved that he's not well, president anymore? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it as, as as a person, it was kind of, he, he was not, he never rose to the, the dignity of the office. So I agree with Andy McCarthy in this. Uh, it was kind of useful in the way that I thought it was always understandable and basically justifiable, justifiable to vote for him as a, as a uh, way to block the left from doing things uh that was all i i never i i couldn't i could never really deprecate people who voted for him on that basis uh fully at, at least the ones who who did so acknowledging the reality of the person who was doing the blocking um so in that sense in, the, in that latter sense um kind of a, kind of a small bummer like now biden's gonna be Empowered to do all sorts of things, in part because of what Trump did, uh, especially over the last two months of his administration. Now, now he gets to now he gets to run the table, 
Um, but yeah, so it, there, there's a certain relief. There's a certain dread. There's a certain mystery. And those are the, that's the complicated cocktail with, with which I approach the post-Trump era. Yeah, I, I personally think it'll be good for you. Um, I'm not sure it'll be good for me, but um, like with him essentially gone and we'll see, we really need to wait six months to figure out exactly what the consequences of all this are. But um, we don't even know what the consequences of the French Revolution were yet. That's right. Thank you, Chow and Lai. Um, (laughs) But uh, um, a big chunk of conservatism has gotten really, really flabby intellectually because and also liberalism too i mean like i mean watching morning joe try to talk about politics without donald trump it's going to be like a big dog whose food bowl has been moved they just don't know like what's going on you know right the the um because as you put it he was did the god emperor thing and put everything through him it required conservatism to basically be boiled down to a monocausal or monofactorial thing is about personal loyalty to Donald Trump. And that papered over serious arguments for the most part on the right about all sorts of policy things and, um, and philosophical things. And, uh, and now people actually are going to have to stand up and defend their positions outside of a context of being basically a stalking horse for defending Donald Trump. Do you really believe in nationalism? Do you really believe in, you know, uh, common good capitalism, whatever the hell that is? Do you really believe um, in building a wall now that Donald Trump is gone? You know, I mean, there are all these things that you could in the for most of the last four years, people people could say, look, I'm a loyal Republican. That means being loyal, personally loyal to Donald Trump. Now you got to make those arguments about what's good for the country, what's good for conservatism, what's good for the Republican Party not filtered through him. And I think there are a lot of people, including a lot of dumb people, um, who have gotten outside celebrity because of their Trump boosterism, um, that now have to sort of stand on their own. And, and it's going to be interesting to watch some of them. I mean, this is a problem for Madison Cawthorn, right? It's a, it's a huge problem for diamond and silk, you know? Um, um, and for a lot of these people, it's, they now have to like make arguments based upon facts and principle and whatnot and not because and not use the crutch of, well, this is what Donald Trump wants and we have to trust his judgment. And um, and one thing that I think like National Review is going to be crucial for, which it was in the 19, 1950s and 1960s, is QAnon is actually much more influential in the Republican Party today than the John Birchers were in 1962 or whatever. and their role as sort of a de facto member of the conservative coalition needs to be thoroughly interrogated, not just QAnon, but also the Grapers and all these other alt-right jackwads. Um, and those are fights that's going to be a sort of a generational fight or could be a generational fight for someone like you. And um, good luck. Well, the, QAnon just had a major blow in that Trump is no longer president. <laughs> like that's I, Now who's being naive? Uh, exactly. Well, that that's already the sort of un, already the the Q and honors are trying to construct the the unfalsifiable or work this into their unfalsifiable narrative. And I, I just I, I I don't know how I don't know I, the one one delightful almost delightfully ludicrous theory I encountered is that 
basically the plot of the movie Face Off is is in play. <laughs> so they've so Trump is is wearing Biden's face, and if if when Biden is stuttering, uh, it's actually Trump having not yet figured out how to duplicate his vocal patterns yet, and big yeah, is true. Yeah, it's huge. Huge is true. That'd be a but big story. You should break it, that story. Yeah, well, no, it feels like more of a, a dispatch thing to, to like break maybe, hard news maybe. like that. Uh, you got to put some people on that. But as as an aside, it's worth mentioning that Face Off is a great, great movie. I, we I can only have watched... that debate on the four hundredth episode of of The Remnant. Um, uh, <laughs> I think it's um, one of the best action movies ever made. I'm not a big fan of John Woo stuff. I'm not. It's just too stylized. They, the style takes takes over from the substance in a way that bothers me. Um, I don't like a lot of that, you know, violent ballet crap. Um, you prefer that. If you've never seen life. it though, it reminds me, there's an episode of community where Abed tries to answer the question of whether or not Nick Cage is a good actor. And he basically <laughs> implodes like the androids working with Harvey Mudd, um, in Star Trek. Um, yeah, because he can't, he can't, there's just too much evidence on both sides of the question. Um, <laughs> anyway, I actually have to, we have to wrap this up. You know, we could do this all day, but um, um, I have another podcast obligation in six minutes. So wow. um, I want to say thank you very much, Jack, for, for coming back. And thank you for all the indispensable work you did getting this podcast off the ground back in the uh, before times. And yeah, um, thank you for getting me to in, in many ways where I am now. Um, and, uh, and now that you're in DC, you know, and once, once human beings can actually meet in, in the meat space, uh, we should get together. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. So Jack Butler has, uh, he has not actually left the studio as per normal, uh, because he wants to do this organically. Um, uh, so, uh, thanks again to Jack Butler for coming on. Please come to the dispatch to, uh, sign up for stuff. And, um, uh, and thanks to everybody who's stuck with this podcast, not only through this taxing conversation, but through the entire Trump era and, uh, look forward to, uh, new vistas ahead. So with that, I'll see you next time. Deep breath. Oh, crack knuckles. Oh. no, you won't. This is a podcast. So this is, reminds me of how the um so they they actually did the National Review Christmas party this year but virtually and yeah, it was a lot like this. Man. Yeah. It was they they tried to do the 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 12 days of Christmas thing. <laughs> oh, that's a bad idea. But yeah, it, it was it's so terrible. It was a lot like the um are you aware of the Ports, Portsmouth Symphonia? No. It's a group of musicians. So they're all trained musicians, but they um every time they performed, they would switch instruments and then try huh. to play <laughs> they would try to play a song. So you could like hear it, you could see what they were trying or you could hear what they were trying to do, but they were just obviously incompetent and it creates a real just ersatz atmosphere to the recordings. That's what it reminded me of. We kind of knew what we were doing, so but it just didn't work. 
we did a dispatch Christmas party the same way. And I propose that for next year, when we're all in person, we should still, if, um, we should try to have a conversation as if we're still on a group zoom thing where we constantly <laughs> say, no, no, you, you go first. No, wait, 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 wait. no, you go. <laughs> just well, I mean, do it. people, I, I, I think, I, and I don't want to burn too much in the locker room here, but, uh, I think some, uh, certainly my social skills, to the extent I had any at all, which is dubious, have atrophied significantly. So I wouldn't be surprised if conversations were awkward, perhaps not in that precise way, then certainly in ways that we cannot anticipate at this moment, just as we remember to interact with humans again. Yeah, you, you didn't have a lot of ca- conversational capital to burn in the first place. but um, Right, I right. know, I know. All right, so let's get started. Um, and maybe we'll just use this chitter chatter as 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 bonus gold material for the end or something. 